Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the Eco Wild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar, May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you and we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Welcome back, everybody, to another Friday breakdown edition of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. We've got a fun one this week. We're talking about rut biology from uh, Monday's episode with Mark Turner, one of our good buddies. Jacob, how you doing? Uh, doing well, doing well. Not as well as you, Andrew. And we're sitting here on uh, Andrew's porch. smoking. He's smoking a cigar. I'm just over here with a, an energy drink, of all things. Yep. So, Andrew's just... Who's healthier? Look, oh, that's, a, cigar, that's a good question. That's look, good one question. cigar a week ain't going to hurt anybody. I'm telling you. Anyways, <laughs> wow, I'm going to get flagged. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like Apple's going to flag this for like, this information or something. Oh, yeah. No. Starting off great here. Um, so, Monday's episode is a fun one. It was one that, like I mentioned, just a little more backstory. Me and Mark were hunting one time, and we were hunting an area that had a November rut, and just down the road, there was a January rut, and we were talking about it. I'm like, man, why is it like this? You know, like you kind of know, but... We got in a big conversation about it, and I was like, man, that would have made a good podcast. And at the time, uh, Mark had a podcast. It was called Hunt the Land Podcast. Mm-hmm. You could still go find it. It was uh, him and Mariah Bogus, who Mariah's been on the show before, and too. And he's the state deer biologist for North, North Carolina? Carolina now? Yeah. yeah. Um, both of them are just real class act, just awesome guys. Very, very knowledgeable at what they do. And uh, they might have done a podcast on it, but their feed is great. Like that old feed, like if y'all want to go find it, I highly recommend checking it out if you like that kind of conversation. Uh, Because I I mentioned it in the episode, they're fun to talk to because they're they're researchers and they're smart and they know a lot of cool stuff about deer, but they're also hunters. And they look at it from a hunting, and not just any kind of hunter too, they're like public land guys. That are successful too, that kills, I mean dude, freaking Mark got after it down here when he was, you know, in school at Auburn. You the know, first kid, time kid. I ever saw Mark mm-hmm. was on Facebook where everyone was like, look at this deer that this guy killed on a certain WMA down there, which I won't name. And uh, and it was Mark, and he killed a slammer down there. I'm like, who is this guy? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I ended up seeing him. We both went to the School of Forestry in Auburn. I was working on my bachelor's degree. He was working on a master's. And uh, I like I saw him down there. I was like, that's that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, ended up getting to know him. We we hunted together quite a bit back in the day, man. That was that was that, fun. There's, actually, there's a video on our YouTube channel with Mark Turner in it. Mm-hmm. He's he's the main man. It's literally, I think it's our third most popular YouTube video. It's got like sixty something thousand views. Yeah, that's I where I, I shot a big old doe down there. Um, or was that you? Or I thought he shot that doe. No, I shot the doe. He filmed me. Mark had tagged out by that point. Just going, uh, you know, going about how they're these guys are public land killers. Mark had tagged out already that year. I'm almost 100% sure. And he was like, man, if you need somebody to film you, like, I still want to go, but I'm tagged out. And uh, I was like, for real? And he's like, yeah. And he, he came and filmed me on that hunt. Um, that was a, that was a blast. That was a really good time hunting with him out that's, there. That's man. not even the video I'm talking about, though. The video I'm talking about was when y'all did, you and him did the video quartering and packing out that deer. Oh yeah, that was that was on a, that, yeah. He was that, like, okay. That was the doe he shot. <sighs> yeah, yeah. So, so you, you get a little high mind yourself. Andrew oh. shot. Andrew shot this. Andrew shot this. Listen, Andrew shot this doe. This is a fun story. We're gonna we're bringing it back mm. before we get into this Friday breakdown. Andrew shot this doe, and Mark took some photos of Andrew with this doe and made it look like a three hundred and fifty pound cow elk. Okay, made this deer look ginormous, and then we shared it. And the people were like, I caught some crap. Dude, he's a long arm in it. <laughs> I'm like, this doe's like on top of me. Yeah. yeah anyways, like, it's one of the funniest uh, photos. I mean, the doe does, like, it looks. It I looks, tried to delete every trace <laughs> of that picture that I could find. <laughs> Except it's on my phone. I got to reshare it. Mm-hmm. No, but, uh, but, but anyways, but no, y'all did a, a quartering pack out video uh, with Mark, which was, which was pretty slick. But long story short, you've known Mark for a long time. I've known him. 
pretty much just as long as I've known you. For yeah, the most you were part. on that hunt where we did the pack out video. Was I? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure you were. You came down for it and uh, almost killed a hog or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all yeah. bow hunting down there. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, 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 yep. God, yep. I wish I still lived down there. <laughs> that place is awesome. Anyways, <laughs> anyways. Um, yeah, we so we finally ended up following up, and especially this time of year, I felt like this would be a good time of year to have this conversation uh, when we're not hammering so hard down on the, the actual tactic stuff. Um, just do something that kind of like, I don't know, teases your brain a little bit, kind of makes you think, maybe learn something about deer. And, uh, it was a fascinating conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause Mark, I, I initially hit him up about this like a week or two ago and gave him a little bit of time to kind of, you know, gather his thoughts and everything. And, and he did some research. I knew he would, cause that's just like, he's, he's legit, man. And he did, he did some research on it and came prepared. And I, it was a fun podcast. It, you looked over at, I was just smiling during the podcast. I'm like, this is awesome. You're like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> so, uh, what were some things that kind of jumped out at you? Well, I mean, podcast? well, I mean, probably to start off with is the whole restocking effort. Um, so a, a lot of, well, I guess it depends on what state you're from and, and what was done in different areas of the country. Um, this is probably a very general, uh, this is a, v- a very general statement that I feel like is fairly common in the Southeast, that there was a decent amount of restocking in a lot of different states. Yep. Okay. When it comes to whitetails, same thing with wild turkeys and the whole nine yards. Um, and the, the amount of detail that he had on uh, the restocking efforts was kind of interesting. And we've known, like you and me have known about like the restocking efforts in Alabama. And you hear about these genes, these people throwing around these genes, like, oh, man, that's that Wisconsin gene that was, you know, mm. when they were restocked down here. That's that Michigan gene or that's that Texas gene. Because, again, I, if I remember correctly, there's a there's a document I'm sure we can find somewhere uh, of the restocking in Alabama and where, like, what regions of the state they did the restocking at and also what states those deer came from. Because I remember it was Texas, Arkansas, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, I'm trying to think what else. Again, a lot from Southwest Alabama, mm-hmm. um, Sumner County, maybe North Carolina was some too. Oh yeah, because there were some in there that I didn't expect. To yeah, see. yeah. But but anyways, um, you know, you get these like little pockets, and they're I mean, like Andrew said on the podcast. You have people even today that are like, oh man, that's that Wisconsin genetic. Like yeah. they'll see a deer, big frame. Someone kill a deer with a real big frame, heavy mass, and like, oh man, that's that Wisconsin genetic, or oh that's that Michigan genetic. And that that'd be like everywhere. Like, I grew up hunting Shelby County and Bibb County, and that's that's what you'd hear down there. Like in the clubs we were in, people would be like, oh that's one of them uh, Wisconsin strain. Yeah, Wisconsin, they call yeah, it. they called it strain. Yeah, and. When you start looking at the genetics and everything, it wasn't that many deer brought. Like, like again, uh, Mark talks about this in the episode. It it wasn't that many deer actually came from those areas. Mm-hmm. Like, first off, I think it was only like three thousand deer they restocked or something like that. And of that three thousand, you know, deer roughly, I think it was like eighty two percent. He said came or something eight in the eighty percentile came from. Alabama, like came from that southwest corner of Alabama where they pulled those deer there. The other, you know, twelve percent or whatever, um, you know, came from these other areas. Oh, I can't do math. What am I talking about? No, twenty-two percent. Don't ask me. No, eighteen percent. God, I can't do math. God, I'm, <laughs> can't read. Can't no, do math. no, but I know I got Andrew, Andrew's cigar smoke in my face, getting a little distracted here. Okay, all right. His little, his little nicotine rush, rocking and rolling. Uh, man, you just gotta be a man about it. Just inhale it like a man. No, but so there's roughly eighteen percent or so. Uh, of these deer came from these other states. Talking Texas, North Carolina, Michigan, Wisconsin. I'm sure I'm missing another one in there. Or I think I said Arkansas. Um, mm-hmm. So <clears throat> there's not that many that came from those areas. Okay, when you're looking at that, 
and then he started talking about the whole EHD, uh, you know, the whole blue tongue, the EHD, um, and, and how the southern deer specifically can handle that so much better than these northern, that's you know, interesting, this, these northern whitetails. And he's like, you know, there's a high likelihood that a lot of these deer got killed off, like just when you know by you know ehd and everything down here because it's prevalent you know it's one of those things that it happens but it's not to the point that you see these huge kill-offs down here unless it's like a crazy crazy drought and still it's never like that bad like i've heard of specific counties in alabama or areas of counties in the past having like a you know a, a pretty bad uh summer with a lot of kill-offs with you know ehd yeah what was it like 2014 maybe there was a bad drought i think it was I remember because I, I shot a deer coming to a water hole that year. Like I hunted a water hole in a creek. Cause the like it was a was pool of water. It was a pool of water and like a cut bank of the creek. And I killed a doe on it. That was actually my first archery deer. It was in 2014. But anyways. Yeah, but that whole, um, the whole thing about EHD, like, you know, hitting and the southern deer just genetically they, they, they've been dealing with it for so many generations that they're just a little bit more i guess tougher to it you know they can they have a little more resistance to it versus the northern strains that they're a lot more susceptible and it's like there's a very good likelihood that a lot of those northern deer that came down here probably didn't make it that long like they, they probably you know they probably bred and stuff but they probably didn't make it that long and then you start talking about when mississippi state uh, did their uh, genetic studies and you know they pulled here from alabama and some other places to kind of see you know, where some of this repopulation genetics are actually still at, if there's any left. And the only place in Alabama they found any kind of those, you know, repopulate, those, uh, those reintroduced genetics from, say, another state was on Bankhead National Forest in the Black Warrior Management area, area, which is kind of that north central, northwest central part of the state of Alabama. And it's the Michigan strain that's there. Okay. And the thing is, and this is something I probably should have asked Mark, but I don't know if he would know like this kind of details. Like, okay, it, it shows like, it's like they can see it, you know, on whatever kind of testing they're doing that, Hey, the genetics still prevalent, but how much of that genetic it plays a factor, how much of those genes that are prevalent actually play a factor on what those deer actually, you know, produce and turn out to like, yeah. is it like, is it like, just like, you know, you're doing like a genetic study on yourself, whatever. And you're like, you know, a 10th percent, you know, African or one percent or two percent or three percent, whatever. It's to the point like it doesn't. It's not really going to make a difference per se, but it's still there. Um, or is it a higher percentile? And if I'd guess, it's probably extremely low. Yeah. Have you ever done one of those uh, genealogy things? Gene no, I haven't. You don't need one, bro. You from Ireland? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I I kind of asked Mark that um, about the how much it influences like antlers specifically. Mm -hmm. Because, like, people, especially up there, they'll kill a, a deer with, like, a heavy frame. And like, you kind of mentioned that earlier. Like, that's that's what the, the heavy frame deer, like, you see someone post that. And they're like, oh, this is that Michigan strain. Which, by the way, the town or the township or whatever that they source those deer from in Michigan mm -hmm. was from, I actually looked it up. It was in, it was from, like, the UP where it comes around and borders Wisconsin. And it's, like, right there on the Michigan-Wisconsin line. Oh, that's cool. It's actually not that far from where we grouse hunted which is pretty neat um but so that that's where those came from and and i was wondering if if that was what influenced those like heavy mass big framey deer that just look different you know and uh mark said no it's probably more to do with age you know like a, as a deer gets older like their that age helps them pack on that mass and framiness and everything like that which makes sense 
because that part of the state, I mean, it's known for producing big deer. And he also touched on another thing that we talked to the guy. I don't know if we did this on the podcast, but the guys from Land and Legacy, who are some other uh, habitat guys, deer managers, they said the same thing because we, ex- we were talking to them about that same region. And they were saying, well, the, probably the reason that you have such giant deer come from that place all the time is, uh, first of all, they get old because it's such a hard place to hunt. But second of all, the low deer density was a, a big part of it. And that and that whole discussion is kind of fascinating. We could, you, do you remember having that oh, conversation uh, with them? You want to dive into that? Yeah, just a yeah bit? it's like the whole idea. Well, that that was um, <clears throat> that wasn't even on the podcast. We we might have talked about it on the podcast, but that's when I I called. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think. Was it Matt or Adam? God, that's a that's a good question. Who? Which one was it? This feels. I feel it's probably ter- Adam. <clears throat> I think. It, yeah. yeah, Adam Keith. Um. Yeah, that's yeah, that's who it was. But anyways, I was, so I was talking to Adam. This was last year when I was going to Iowa. Uh, I jumped on a call with him, and we were talking about that. And somehow we got talking about you know just bankhead in the area with low deer densities. You know, really big deer that get killed. When I say really big deer. You know, you, there's deer that get killed at over 170 inches that mm-hmm. get killed there. Michael Perry. Yeah, Michael Perry's one of them. Um, but there's, a, I mean, there's a bunch. Uh, but anyways, so we were t- discussing that, and and he that was one of the first things he asked was you know. What is there, you know, agriculture, is there, you know, timber management or anything like that around there? And I'm like, you know, the timber cutting is very few and far between in certain spots. I think they actually do a little bit more in the national forest than they do on the management area side of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm like, but it's low deer density. Like everybody tells you, even the biologist, everybody up there tells you like it's low deer density. He's like, well, that's the reason why you got big deer. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, you know, if there's some timber cuts going on, like you've got, you know, decent habitat. But you just, for whatever reason, have lower deer numbers. There's so much more forage out there. Even though the, the habitat quality is not super crazy high, there's not enough deer out there to totally wipe it all out. To stress it. Absolutely. So, like, you have deer that have very low stress on them, both, like, the mothers and the fawns, but also the bucks, too, so they can express their full potential. And if they can do that while getting to, you know, five, six, seven-plus years old, that's how you can, you know, grow absolute giants. Yeah. Um, and it kind of gets down to the whole mindset. And then we got talking about something totally different, which we can maybe do for another podcast, maybe get them on. The whole idea of why you necessarily don't necessarily, well, if I can talk here, <laughs> why you don't or why you might not want just a ton of deer on a property. Yeah. It's fun. And it's like, it's fun to see a bunch of deer. But like what he, he was talking about was like, when you have just an absolute ton of deer, it puts so much more stress on the deer herd food-wise that, like, yeah, you can go out there and see 15, 20, 30 deer in a sentence. Awesome. But you also have so much less food on the landscape. Like, you plant all the food plots you want. It's not going to be able to, you know, sustain those deer long-term throughout the whole year. And those deer are going to be kind of stunted when it comes to, you know, their full potential because they don't have the food and they have so much more stress on them, especially, like, the, the mothers, uh, the does and everything with their fawns. That um, it puts more stress on them. They can't express their full potential. Versus if you went in there and waxed all those deer and your yeah. neighbors did too. And you're like, okay, yeah, maybe we're not seeing, you know, we go from seeing, you know, 15, 20 deer sit to now we're seeing a, a handful, a couple of deer sit. Um, those bucks that are born into that kind of landscape where there's an abundance of food uh, and there's not just a ton of deer, again, competing for that food, they can express their full potential. Um, and you can actually start seeing a difference potentially in that deer herd for antler growth, body size, the whole nine yards in that case. Yeah. 
And that ties in with another study that Mississippi State did, which we talked about with Mark a little bit. I think we were already done. Yeah, we got to do a podcast. We got to do a podcast on it. Big yeah, time. and it basically, I saw this years ago on Growing Deer TV, and uh, Mark actually used to work for Growing Deer TV, by the way. Did you know that for Grant Woods? Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah, Mark was on an episode. Really? Yeah. He famous, he, famous he, before he knew us. Yeah, man, I'm telling you, I remember because he was on one where they were talking. They were on some guy's property and they were talking about quail restoration, and they had a bunch of Cerecia lespidiza on there, which is very prevalent around here. And that's how I learned what that. I knew what it was, but I didn't know like what it was called or anything like that. And he he explained that and that if quail only eat Cerecia seeds, they will starve to death because they're so low quality, which is fascinating. Probably why we don't have any freaking quail around here. Anyways, they um, on that Mississippi State study, they took a buck from a good quality soil region, like the Mississippi Delta, and then one from a bad quality soil region, some you know pine, sandy soil, whatever, and uh, and they basically had the 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 descendants of those deer in captivity, and within I think they said it was two generations, the buck from the poor quality soil region complete or the the descendants of the doe from the poor quality soil region, those bucks ended up catching up and they were just as big as the Delta bucks. And it's because that the mother had ample nutrition, pretty much exactly like what you're talking about. And, uh, and that goes on to affect her fawns, you know, while, while in gestation or what. So the health of the mother has a lot to do with the health of the fawns and that can affect buck quality for years, like generations to come, which is really fascinating stuff. Um, so that was, that was fun to talk about. And, and it's just, it's just kind of neat, you know, like maybe like when you go and hunt some of these really high deer density areas, you see a lot of deer, but you're not seeing big bucks versus guys who hunt those low deer density areas. They're not seeing anything like Rocky a couple weeks ago. Oh, that I, I finally listened to the whole episode. Oh yeah. Again, since I wasn't on it and I'm not gonna lie. Like when he was talking about, like he went, he saw two bucks in November on the same hunt. And literally hunted that spot a couple more times and never saw another deer until the day he shot that buck. And he just kept at it. And I'm like, that sounds terrible, dude. But that's what it takes to kill, you know, a seven and a half year old, 140 plus inch deer that's that was on the downhill swing of things. Because mm-hmm. he's like, it was smaller the year he killed it versus the, the previous yeah. year. That's so And I'm that's like, so God, crazy, man. man. But that's that's how it is. Ever since I was a kid, you hear about it like that up there. Mm-hmm. And not just like the National Forest, but those counties in general. Because uh, I have I have family, a lot of my family's from Cordova, which is in Walker County, and it's like that up there. Like, yeah. they have really high-quality bucks, but not a ton of deer. Not a ton of deer, absolutely. And then, um, so we, I was, so when I went and dropped the um, the uh, Iowa deer off at uh, Daniel Williams' spot, uh, Cedar Creek, or Cedar Ridge uh, taxidermy, he was showing me uh, some of these deer that people were bringing in that, literally came off the road that like you know it's all of his neighbors that have like a little bit of property around there like where his shop's at mm-hmm. and dude the deer they're killing i'm like you know they're killing it'd be a three and a half row that's 130 inches then mm. you're like what is this he's like oh yeah he's like this is you know it's just this yeah. area you know <laughs> and he's like man he's like if you could find some property up here to buy or lease or something he's like you'd be you know he'd be on them and you'd i'm be like, in good shape and i'm like that is this crazy 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 and we were just in the shop looking at all his neighbors bucks like all these guys from up and down that road bringing mm-hmm. deer in and I'm like, this is, cr- this, yeah, yeah, it's wild. And, and also the whole discussion on it, the first of all, the Alabama rut map. The, I feel like this is an interesting discussion. Georgia's got one, Mississippi's, Mississippi's got, got one, one, Florida's got one. I think one. Louisiana too. I think Louisiana, maybe even South Carolina. But you know, Arkansas's got one too. Um, I'd see it. It gets shared <laughs> around a lot, and 
I'll just say, like, I see people talk about it on social media all the time, and they're like, it's totally wrong in my area. I've hunted a lot of different places across the state, and mm-hmm. it's always been, I mean, pretty much dead on yep. for everywhere I've hunted. Um, but it, it's peak, again, it's peak dates. The thing is, you can find deer, like b- bucks breeding does and chasing does, you know, a week, two weeks before that time period, and then a week or two weeks after that time period. Mm. And a lot oh. of people don't take that in consideration. So, yeah, I... <laughs> curious on your thoughts on this okay the one of the places that we hunt early december rut okay we went in and i'm always telling everybody and like when michael started hunting with us down there i was telling him i'm like look around thanksgiving it starts getting good like you you might see some chasing on thanksgiving bucks are going to be fighting like that's when you need to like really start getting after it out there and then early like that first two weeks of december is great and then after that, it gets hard. Like that, for me, it was always like, okay, after like the 15th, I kind of tail off. That's what I mentioned in one of these episodes we've done over the last couple of days. We've recorded a bunch back to back here. But I mentioned that that post-rut time frame, I, I kind of usually in the, when I was younger, I'd like switch and do small game and start rabbit and squirrel hunting and stuff. Um, this year, pretty much everybody that we knew there, myself included, like really struggled around Thanksgiving that first week of December and everyone's like, Oh, the rut hadn't started yet. And then on the backswing, the, they say the peak breeding around here is like the 10th to the 15th or so. And on the back end of that, that's when everyone started seeing rut action and everything. We started coming off the backside of that peak of when they say those dates are. And so I'm wondering if the, for the first part of the rut, you know, like weather conditions during that time were pretty crappy. Like it was warm. It, it was real windy a lot of days. We had a lot of rain, kept people out of the woods, but we hunted anyway. Still didn't have great luck, but I wonder if that is kind of like why everyone thought it was delayed around here. Like the deer were probably still doing their thing, like Mark was saying, but then you get on the backswing of the rut when there's less does coming into heat, like a lot of does have been bred and you got that backswing. And so you have less available does on the landscape for the bucks to find. Like I, in my opinion, it starts getting better again. And then, and then, bam! Right then, we got hit with great weather, and everyone was in the woods, and they bodies started falling. Yeah, so stacking. Well, and again, it's like we mentioned it. I mentioned in the episode with um, with Mark is the whole idea that you know if it's a Saturday, but it's you know seventy degrees, you're not going to have people hunting nearly as hard and as long as if it was oh, the same day, yeah. but it was thirty five degrees. I'm guilty of that. And, and but but that's I think that's a huge factor on whether or not you know people are even seeing deer let alone killing deer and i say when i say seeing deer maybe they're not getting into the they're staying until an hour before dark or maybe they're not hunting the good spot maybe they're saving it that well that that, yeah absolutely that's another thing it's like maybe they're like i'm not gonna go to that money spot because the weather's not gonna be good like i'm just gonna mess it up blah 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 there's all those outlying factors um so you know i don't know the whole thing with like the rut and that's why you know we brought up with them like you know i've had guys tell me that you know a different piece of public land that you know, they feel like the the rutting activity was three weeks behind of where it was the the last few years, and I'm like, you know, by all or uh, let me let me think here. Like the that's I don't, that's not how biology works. Is in the whole idea like a doze is like I'm not going to come in the heat for freaking three extra weeks. Okay, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so they're still doing their thing, and, and Mark kind of explained that like, the doe is still going to come into heat within that like that doe each year is going to come into heat within that same little time period. You know, that four or five day window. Well, 
if that's the case, but it's like crappy weather and you don't feel like hunting hard or you are hunting hard, but maybe like the deer just aren't in those areas based off, like maybe if, if it's really hot, maybe they're on the north side of the slopes. They're kind of in that cooler areas. They're down those steep, nasty creek bottoms. They're down there closer to some water and stuff. Place that maybe you don't want to necessarily dive into because it's maybe thicker, it's, it's nastier, it's harder access. But that's where the deer want to be. And there's still activity there. But again, the bucks aren't laying down the sign in the typical areas that you'd be seeing it because maybe it doesn't make sense for bucks to be running top of the, these ridges and everything right now. Maybe, again, all the does are staying low, so they're going to stay low or vice versa, whatever. That is, uh, it's, it's an interesting discussion. It's one of those things that, you know, you always hear people say, like, oh, the, the, the rut didn't happen this year or the rut's slow. And it's like that's the issue with not only, you know, hunter observations because you only see what you see. Okay. And if you ain't sitting in the right spot, I, I've given this, I've said this many a times on the podcast, and I mentioned on this episode again, like last, or I say last year, like last deer season. So the 2021, 2022 deer season. One morning when I shot one of the bucks I killed that, that season, I was 250 yards away from Wesley Moe, and I had all this crazy chase and rut action, and he literally didn't see a single thing that morning. And he was just over the ridge where all this activity was happening for me. Uh, and I killed, again, a five-and-a-half-year-old buck that morning. Yep. Chasing a doe, or chasing a buck that's chasing a doe. He was snort-wheezing the whole nine yards, just crazy vocalizations. And he didn't see anything. Well, if that's the case, that's like the difference. You could be two to 300 yards off, and it could be the slowest rut you've ever seen. But you might just be that far off the the X where you're not seeing anything. But if you were over there, you'd see something. Same thing with trail cameras. The issue with trail cameras is trail cameras watching such a small little area. Like, yeah, you can have it in a tight little funnel. That definitely is going to up your ante on the whole idea of whether or not you're going to have some you know, more serious deer movement coming through. But if you just have a trail camera on, you know, a bait station, if you're on private land, you can run corn, you can put corn out, you put food plots, whatever. Like, yeah, you should see probably some bucks bumping does off that because clearly does are going to be there. The bucks should be there as well. But if, especially if you're on public land, you don't have any of those, you know, any of those things that really put your cameras on it could be still kind of hit or miss. Like, yeah, you could have them on scrapes, okay? And, like, we saw that on our little mountain place we went and hunted. Yep. You know, we had, you know, camp trail cameras on scrapes and, you know, had all this good activity and all of a sudden it died off and then we started getting some activity and, like, you'd start getting, like, what looked like blank photos and then you pull the HD uh, video off of them and request it and then you got a buck in the background chasing a doe and yep. you would have never saw it if, you know, you didn't pull the, the video off of it. So, you know, it's stuff like that. I mean, there's so many factors that uh, can make it where it seems like the rut's not happening or it's slower than what it is. But in all honesty, you just might not be on the X, on the spot that you need to be in order to see that activity. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, that's a <clears throat> that's a great that's a great point. Really, the hunt we just had on the SOA is it, similar to that. We had all that activity right there. We weren't hunting that far from that area the first two days of the hunt. We were just... We're on the other side of the saddle, on the other creek drainage, on the other side of it. And it was slow, slow, slow. And then the minute we pop over, we start getting all this activity. And we're just, you know, right, we were just just off, you know, just out of the game. Yeah, and if we would have stayed where we had been at, more than likely we would have been like, man, this this sucked. Like, this hunt sucked. You know, we didn't have the timing right. It wasn't like it said it was. Like, it wasn't like what the biologist said it was. Like, it was running at my man. Little bucks were cruising. Nothing was really happening. But we elected to do something a little bit different and kind of go with our gut in a spot and come to find out that's where all the freaking mature bucks wanted to be. Yep. And, and uh, yeah, and, you know, that early rut time frame too, by the way, um, that I was thinking about it when we were talking about this. The three best hunts I've ever had in my entire life were all, like, very front end of the rut. You know, like, guys in the Midwest, 
they talk about it like the like the Halloween or mm. the couple of days before Halloween. Mm-hmm. That's like the equivalent of like what I'm talking about here. Like for that the the area that we mentioned earlier with the December rut, mm-hmm. like that Thanksgiving time frame, two of the best hunts of my life were on uh, the day after Thanksgiving. And, oh, Black uh, Friday. Black Friday, but double buck Black Friday. We called it that for a reason, son, because we doubling up that day. And uh, and and then the SOA hunt, very similar, um, very front end of the rut, excellent hunt. And then there's a couple others too. The mountain hunt we did, same thing, very front end of the rut, and you're just catching those first few does that are coming in, and and I mean all hell breaks loose. Yeah, so so front end of the rut that when we talked to guys that hunted up there, they were shocked. They were like, you saw chasing. On like that week, like what do you like? We don't normally see anything until at least Christmas or like the first of January. And I'm like, yeah, dude. I'm like, it's you know, that's whatever reason you hit a couple of does coming to heat there, and it was on. I mean, some of that's definitely luck. Like I ain't gonna lie. Like we 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 were able to put ourselves in an area where there was a hot doe. And I mean some of, I mean some of that's definitely like knowing where does want to hang out and putting yourself in an area like that. And then obviously some of that is like. If you get lucky and one of those does isn't an early doe, then you're gonna have a good hunt, my friend. And it's just uh, crazy that's happened to us twice this year. Yeah, and and each time it's happened, we've killed two bites. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude, that's true. And uh, I, I like harping on this subject because I've I've talked to so many people over the years who end up being like, "Well, we kind of they didn't really rut this year, or they didn't rut good this year," is what I hear a lot. And I'm like. All I can help but think is like they did. You just weren't there, <laughs> or like you weren't in the right spot or something. And and I, I think it's important to kind of get that in your head, where like okay, these dates they are running. Houndstooth Game Calls Dixie Hen Slate was just voted the overall best turkey call by Field and Stream Outdoors. And trust me, it's super easy to run and be extremely dynamic when you're in the turkey woods. Now, we've mentioned a couple of these calls in the past, like the Spurmaster and the Success Call in a past episode with both Gary Vines and Lyle Gilbert of Houndstooth Game Calls. And it was funny enough, y'all actually bought every Spurmaster call and success call they had. Now, pay attention to their website. They're going to have some more come up in stock in the next few days. So when they come available, make sure you get one if you did not purchase one before they sold out last time. Both the Spurmaster and the Success Call are fantastic for hunting high-pressure turkeys, whether you're on a hunting club where you have a lot of other members hunting those same turkeys, or if you're on public land. Again, both of those calls will make you sound a little bit different from everybody else and be a lot more subtle in your calling technique and be able to really help close those distance with those gobblers. So if you want to give Houndstooth Game Calls a try, go to houndstoothgamecalls.com. Use the promo code SOP24. Again, promo code SOP24 for 15% off houndtoothgamecalls.com. True Lock Chokes has been made in Georgia since 1981 and offering a wide range of chokes, over 2,000 different chokes for all kinds of shooting activities. You might be wondering why you'd want to purchase a True Lock Choke, and it's to improve your shotgun performance. Absolutely guaranteed. And as a great example, we have Andrew Maxwell here. And, uh, Andrew, you've had some pretty good luck, again, kind of switching out chokes and trying out the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. So, Andrew, what's been your experience so far? Yeah, I've, always, I've used the same choke for several years now. I never really thought much of it, and I got the True Lock choke in. I patterned my gun with the first choke at uh, 30 and 50, and then I switched to the True Lock and changed from 30 to 50. And the 50-yard pattern on my gun with the True Lock choke is unbelievable like everybody's jaws were dropping like when we were out there with mike and sam we were all super impressed i mean it's throwing a better 
pattern at 50 now than it was throwing at 40 before my old choke. And Andrew, you're shooting the Precision Hunter choke from TrueLock. It's a great option. It's the same chokes I have in my shotgun. So guys, if you want to give TrueLock a shot this spring, you can head over to TrueLockChokes.com. That's T-R-U. L-O-C-K-Chokes.com. You can also use the promo code SOUTHERN at checkout at TrueLockChokes.com and save 10% on your order. Again, give TrueLock a shot this spring, especially if you're not happy with the performance of your shotgun, and shoot with a more deadly pattern with TrueLock. Another thing, and, I, and we're saying this because we're coming at this from like, we've been those guys. I've been that guy in the past. Like, I, you know, mm. there was no running activity. 100%. And it's, and it's like, and the reason why I feel like I say that I've, you know, I've dealt with that in the past is, you know, you always see like peak breeding dates, like in the Midwest, depending on where you're at, like, you know, it's, you know, November 7th through like the 14th or whatever, peak breeding, and everybody wants to be there. But when you're there, that's when the most does are in heat. Yep. And those bucks don't have to travel, nope. especially if there's a bunch of does. They don't have to travel. They have their doe. If you get there before that, like a week or two ahead of time, if you can if if you can just find some of the does, the bucks are gonna be checking the does. They're gonna be seeking for does. But if you happen to get into one of those areas where that first doe is coming to heat, you could have the best hunt of your entire life. And that's one thing that we changed this year because I haven't done that in the past. I really haven't. Mm-hmm. You know, we always see like peak breeding on some of these different areas that we hunt, and you're hunting that window, and you might see a bunch of little bucks, but like it's kind of hit or miss on the big bucks because the big bucks have their does and they're not traveling a whole bunch. Okay. Versus if you're hunting the, the, the front side of that or even on the back side, but I think on the back side, like you really have to have a certain mindset like, hey, you know, you're hunting some deer that's been probably shot at, you know, you're hunting deer bucks that even though like it's the rut still, like, you know, he's probably a little more wary. The does have been probably bumped a whole bunch, so they're probably going to change their pattern a little bit too. But you can still have that success when there's, again, less does coming to heat versus like that prime time. And I think that happens a lot, especially like at our, on our family farm, um, like where Anthony shot the uh, shot high tower this year, which is a, just a giant. Yeah, that deer isn't. We're gonna have him scored at the. Uh, we're recording this before our uh, event at the Weavers, but I'm gonna have Steve Lucas score that deer. And I think he's probably in the low 140s. Um, that buck was showing some rutting activity, kind of in mid November when he shot that deer. Late November when he shot that yep. deer. Okay. And that's one of those areas, Anthony's like, it's always January. It's a January rut. It's Christmas through the first week of January, second week of January. And I'm like, for majority, yes. But I bet you, if you, again, on like a property like that, if you go super hard in the paint hunting, you know, that first, second week of December, you may have even better luck, big bucks mm-hmm. on their feet, cruising, covering ground, and getting shot opportunities versus if you just hunt like that where the window says, like, oh, the rut's right here. Like, yeah. How do you hunt right here in the middle of it? Yeah, exactly. And and that's where that – and it's fun learning about this because you can look back over time and kind of like put pieces together because that's, that's what I was getting at earlier is it's always been like that for us hunting around here like with Mr. Benny because uh, like I learned all this from him. And he's like, yep, like around December 10th and before that first week, that's when it gets great. And then by Christmas – it's time to squirrel hunt and stuff, you know, and and a lot of time I feel like for the majority of my life I've missed that 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 back slope of the of the rut, the back bell curve, the back of the bell curve, you know, like if you just say peak breeding is December fifteenth in any given area, like I wasn't hunting around like the twentieth or whatever, you know, like by that point they were like, oh, it's getting kind of hard, and maybe that came from that quote unquote lockdown period where you're at peak breeding and there's like a bunch of does in heat. And especially in areas that we hunt where it's just nothing but thickets. Like, they don't have to come out of those thickets. And that's the difference also. You got to take consideration versus, like, the guys are in the Midwest, which there is, again, 
still thick cover out there, depending on like where you're at in the habitat and everything. But if you're hunting, especially in areas that's not huge, continuous like wood lots, okay, mm-hmm. and you're hunting like more patchy cover, patchy woods, those deer are going to have to show themselves at some point. Mm-hmm. They have to. Yep. I mean, they're going to. And you can get a visual because you maybe you, be, you can see further and all that kind of stuff. If you're hunting a lot of areas with clear cuts and cutovers and, you know, pine thickets and even thicker hardwoods, river bottom, stuff like that, sometimes it's hard to get that visual where you can see hundreds of yards in a spot which still has good cover and good deer sign and actually put eyes on a deer. Because maybe, like, he's not coming right there in 50 yards in front of your stand, but you can see him out there, you know, out there three, four, five hundred yards away, you know, making a move, and you can kind of reposition him. It's hard to do that in the southeast, and you just, you don't see that, and that's another reason why, since you don't have, like, a super crazy long uh, visual opportunity down here, where you can see super far, unless you're on a big power line, a gas line, a massive, fresh, clear cut, uh, or something like that, or if you're hunting around agriculture, it's hard to get a visual where you can maybe, like, you're maybe off the X, but you can see where the X is at and you can see that activity. You just don't have that in the Southeast. Oh, this is, a, okay, that that brings up something that Mark said, the whole sample size thing. Like, consider your sample size when when you're out hunting, okay? If you're, if you're thinking of almost like your hunt is like a survey, like you're sitting there and what you see is like your data. Um, obviously, the bigger sample size you have, like, the better it's going to be. When you're on the wolf pack hunt with Wes and everybody, there's like 10 guys out there, okay? So that's like 10 quote-unquote sample sites for that morning. 10 man days. And like you're the only one that saw good rutting activity. Now, if any one of those guys independently was just hunting out there by themselves, they'd be like, well, they're probably not really chasing yet. But you were over there and you saw the chasing and confirmed that, yes, they are chasing. Mm -hmm. You know, just in this one spot, there's just not a ton of does in heat right now. Um, and that's, so, that's the advantage of hunting like with a wolf pack or yeah. like there's that term, but like hunting with a group of guys is you have somebody to feed off of, of what's going on. And again, maybe you're not on the X, but they are, and they're seeing the activity and you can kind of figure out like, what do we need to change? How we need to go about adjusting stuff? Cause now kind of goes back to our SOA hunt. Imagine if we had found that spot day one that we shot these deer <laughs> and you spent three, four days in that area. Mm. <laughs> Andrew probably wouldn't need two boxes of ammo by, 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 by that time. <laughs> I deserve every bit of what I got coming to. <laughs> I deserve it. Golly. Yeah, no, you're right. And hey, even on the, the SOA hunt, you know, we were interacting with other hunters and talking with other hunters mm-hmm. the whole time who were seeing bucks when we weren't. And mm-hmm. we're like, what are you hunting? And they're like, pines, thinned pines. And so what did we do? We went and found the only daggum pines on our whole unit. and uh, It wasn't much. Wasn't much, but that's where the deer were. Yeah. Especially in the, the you know, the wind and everything. Because, um, you know, even if we weren't, quote unquote, hunting like wolf packing with those guys, still just getting information from them, from adjoining units mm-hmm. and stuff, was a big help for us, I feel like. Um, so, I don't know. It was just a fascinating conversation. Um, I, I And like I said, what I was saying before is I think it's important to kind of know that and understand it because i feel like you can give yourself the best chance possible because if if you know when these breeding dates are and you know that they don't change from year to year and then then you can use that to your advantage and you can be like of all the things that i'm not sure of you know of like where they're going to be and what they're going to be doing and all the variables we deal with you can count on those breeding dates don't change you know like in this window of time there will be does and heat out here and so you need to go capitalize on it with whatever weather conditions you have. And, you know, some weather conditions make it hard, and, and in my opinion at least, and then others don't. So To me, the worst one is like, like 
I'd rather have like warm conditions than just like crazy, 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 crazy rain. And I'm not talking like a light rain. But I'm talking like you get thunderstorms and crap and they last for a couple of days. If that's the only time you get to hunt, that's going to mm-hmm. suck. Versus yeah. like, okay, you got some flexibility. Okay, I'll, I'll hunt right before the thunderstorm, after the thunderstorm, stuff like that. Probably get some good movement. Kind of what Rocky talked about in his episode from a few weeks ago. But the whole idea of, again, like understanding your sample size. And this is another reason why it's good to have some good hunting buddies that hunt the same kind of areas that you hunt. It doesn't really matter. I mean, you can have buddies that hunt a completely different county than you or like different area of the state. That's fine. But it's whether you're in a hunting club together, whether you're hunting public land together, whether you have a lease together, something that you can kind of feed off each other and kind of share information and kind of work together. You'll learn a lot quicker what's going on, where the activity is kind of being concentrated around. And then you both can kind of take that to, you know, not only consideration, but also, you know, kind of focus on how can y'all be more successful together. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, yeah it, it's, it's, it's crazy. I mean, this whole year has given me like a, a different appreciation for the rut and uh, that timing and, and when to kind of maybe like a, just a different mindset change of, again, maybe try and get out to this, some of these areas earlier when than most people think of for like, you know, rutting activity. And really trying to you know hunt hard then, and I think I think if we continue to do that, we'll have more and more success uh, doing that instead of like just waiting until not only when you know peak days are, but also when all the other hunters want to be in the woods too. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and you know that place that Zach and them are talking about hunting, the dates that they're going to be there is backswing of peak breeding. Uh, so like they ought to they ought to hit it. I don't know. I might get down there for for one hunt, like a morning hunt or something, and then maybe a podcast. But we'll see. Um, but yeah, I mean, same thing. One, th- one thing that I tried to press Mark on a little bit and, you know, biologists, they're going to tell you if they don't know. And, and he kind of gave me this answer, but I'm still, I'm not letting it go. I just, I want to have a conversation about weather patterns and how it might influence like where the deer are at. Because you, when you talk to these biologists, I, for, I'll just say, I don't know if it's been studied enough to have a definitive answer, but if you ask them like, what about weather conditions? They'll usually say something like it doesn't really affect them that much, you know? And, uh, and I'm like, if that's the case, if they are still moving like they should, then obviously they're moving in different areas than we hunt on those conditions. Cause like I, I typically struggle, you know, I, I definitely see more deer when it's like 40, 50 degrees outside than if it's like 75 degrees outside. And definitely part of that. Could they be say, me. You're talking about the same time of the year. Are you talking about like at that temperature swing? Like same time of year. Okay. Like yep. let's say. I'll say if it's October and it's 75 degrees, you about to hold on to your seat because it's about to get good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But if it's like, let's just say it's December and like for me, I like that prime, like my prime day is like in the 40s, somewhere in the 40s. And, but you take that same day and you make it 73 degrees. Like I, I, I tend to struggle more and I don't know if that's just me like hunting crappy spots or, or not being as careful kind of like you're talking about or are the deer actually not moving as much or are the deer just moving in a different kind of area than I'm hunting for that specific condition and one thing that kind of makes me think about that is like Michael with uh, his hunting club he was in like nine or ten years ago and he put a bunch of trail cameras in basically a pine thicket and it was pretty dead until they got like high winds and rain and then those cameras would light up it's like, okay, in that weather condition, the deer are, to use like a biology term, selecting for that kind of cover in that condition. 
Um, and so, you know, if you're hunting hardwood bottom in that condition, then you're not going to see them because that if it's like that outside, they want to be in those pines. It's a general generalized statement. Yes, this, this generalized statement th- making all kinds of assumptions. I know, yeah, I'm that's, a what, that's what I'm saying. That's what, yeah, that's what I'm trying to get at. But because if you can make it work, because like on my yep. hunting club, uh, like a couple weeks ago, I had I had my stepdad Mike out there and my buddy Sam, and uh, they're they're both newer hunters, and so I kind of like told them where to go. And, and you gar hold Sam. I, I gar hold him. I did. And Mike. <laughs> Sorry, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, you gar hold Mike too? That's yeah, I dirty. Did, I gar hold both of them. God. I didn't mean to. I, it was a little science experiment. Okay. Look, it's not my fault. They don't have tree stands yet. And so they couldn't hunt where I've wanted to go because it was rainy that day. And I was like, you know what? Because it's like this drizzling rain. They're going to be in thin pines. That's what I'm thinking. Should have said road beds and thin pines. And I, that's where I went, and I saw a bunch of deer, and they didn't see squat. They were hunting, like, power lines and stuff. Oh, really? Yeah. And they didn't. I thought for sure they'd see something, though. Like, I'm like, something's going to gonna cross. Negative. Nothing crossed. Hmm. So, yeah, I might have guard hold them a little bit on accident. So, but anyways, that's kind of what I'm talking about is, you know, if you can find some weather condition and use it to your advantage i feel like i feel like that'd be awesome well, it's like i feel all, like your percentage would go way up yeah but it's also like you know hunt whatever makes you more comfortable and, and confident in hunting so like if you're more confident hunting when it's 45 degrees well cool that's awesome um you know if you know you're more confident hunting post rut or late rut dive in on it like it's, it's a lot of it comes down to your confidence level like if it's 75 degrees and it's december I don't know about you, but again, I don't have much confidence going into the woods when it's that kind of condition. So I think it's also like a mental game. But I'll say another thing about the whole study thing, and you know, we we need a need a biologist that would be willing to sit down and and really, you know, have a slightly open mind in this conversation. Is uh, not just talking about deer movement, but also like if you're talking about mature bucks and like they're like, well, you know, they move whatever conditions. They, they may move, but like, what are you, what kind of data? And we've talked about this before in other episodes and in some videos too, that's on Patreon. The whole idea of, yeah, they, they'll, they'll move for sure, but are they moving in an area that's in a killable location in a spot that, you know, it makes sense as a hunter to go into? Cause if they're in the middle of a pine thicket and you can't kill them in a pine thicket, like you can't see five feet in a pine thicket, but that's where the bucks are moving at. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a lot harder, you know, place to be able to kind of observe those deer versus maybe like the conditions you know, open the door for that buck to kind of get out of that pine thing or work at the edge of the pine thing or get down one of those bottoms or wh- yeah. whatever it is. And um, I think that's kind of a, a, another factor is like, okay, yeah, they're, they're moving per like what they're saying with some of these GPS studies that, you know, the bucks, the deer are always moving, but are they moving in an area that's, you know, gives you an opportunity potentially, especially if you're, you know, a hunter, you know, taking food pots out of the equation, bait pile, stuff like that. But if you're actually trying to get after it, you know, is it a, is it a, a a movement pattern that is makes them killable or they just moving 30, 40 yards from their bed in a, in a pine thicket, just really enjoying themselves until, you know, 45 minutes after dark. Questions, yeah. questions, questions. Which we, we, I mean, we talked about that, you know, previously and stuff like that. Like we, we've, we, that's been brought up on the podcast a couple of times. So, you know, it's, it's worth a discussion, um, you know, looking at all of that. And also, I guess like the other question is like the extended movements, like the extended travel. Mm-hmm. Um, like, is there like weather fronts or anything that potentially would get a buck on his feet and, ex- and travel extended distances or over a quicker period of time? Um, you yeah. know, that's something that's kind of, you know, interesting, worth discussing as well. Um, and also, you know, as like Mark said, you know, the number one factor for 
you know, deer movement and enhanced deer movement is rutting activity. Yep. Well, if, if that's the case, as pre-rut, you know, rut, you know, kind of later part of the rut, post-rut time frame, um, you know, that's, of course, we kind of kind of know that, but is there anything else inside of that that would enhance that movement? So, again, it's a lot of questions, a lot of questions to be had. Yeah, and, and, and this is too, like, I, I guess one of the last things I'll say about this is, like, we've done a bunch of GPS stuff before. Like, we've done videos on GPS data. Um, we've done podcasts on GPS data. And, like, this stuff is getting studied, but but I don't think it's getting studied like in the way that we want it to get studied, you know, like, like a lot of times, and maybe I'm wrong about this. And, and if I am, I'd like love to talk to somebody who can like explain otherwise, but a lot of these studies, they're, they're looking at it in a way that's maybe not super practical for like our purposes, because it's different if you're like uh, hunting, like a managed property and big food plots, stuff like that. Versus mm-hmm. if you're doing like the whole mobile you know, hunting club or or public land or lease or whatever kind of thing. But it's like if their if their data says that regardless of moon phase and weather conditions and whatnot, these deer move the same distance. Well, like, what are the details of that? You know, like how fine is that? Because we're talking about a lot of times we're talking about we need the difference of them moving instead of a hundred yards, we need them to move two hundred yards when you're hunting like this kind of style that we're talking about where like you're getting close to his bed or whatever. And, and maybe he, instead of, you know, stopping 10 yards in that thicket before dark, he, he comes 10 yards out of the thicket or whatever. And there's just, I don't think there's anything out there that's that fine tuned yet. No, no. Or, or they're not looking at like what kind of cover they're, they're like selecting for based on conditions. I don't, I don't think that exists. If it does, I need to figure out who did that study ASAP. Cause I want to talk to him, <laughs> you know, uh, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. Uh, again, I think, it also comes down to that. That's getting so specific with each individual buck. It's like any animal. Like one dog's not the same as another dog, and how they act. Same thing with a deer. Like one one buck's not going to act exactly the same as another buck. So they're going to do their own. You know, they're, they're all going to act a little bit different, and you can't take that. Um, you, you can't take that variability and, and put it into any kind of data set. Like there's no way to go about doing that. Um, you can make a general statement, I'm sure, by looking at some of those, you know, outlying factors, but um, the variability between individual deer is so specific. It's almost, again, um, it's, it almost looks it's like beating a dead horse. Like, it ain't going nowhere. Like, you, yeah. can, you can only do so much. I mean, there's so much that we want to learn, uh, but it also comes back down to, you know, Mark said this, we have had other people say this, and I still believe it. To become successful, the number one that one of the number one factors for someone whether or not they're successful is time they spend in the woods. If if you only have a one day a week to hunt, man, you're that's an uphill battle for you to like be successful. Especially if you have any set goals for yourself that you want to shoot a certain kind of quality of a deer. Okay, uh, if you're just meat hunting or something like that, like you can be successful with that. If you're trying to find, and maybe you, you try to set goals for yourself that you want to shoot a mature deer, you want to shoot a three-and-a-half-year-old buck or something, it's that much more difficult when you only have, like, one day a week to hunt, okay? Yep. Or one afternoon a week to hunt. Or maybe it's one day every couple weeks to hunt uh, versus somebody that has a lot more flexibility. Maybe they're a business owner or whatever, and they can go out there and hunt multiple days a week, and you can kind of sit out there, and you can really kind of see what's going on. Um, and, and those people are going to have a, a better opportunity you know, when it comes to, you know, putting deer, you know, putting deer down, it's all about time in the woods. And that's like the, 
to me the number one factor. If you don't have a lot of time in the woods, by God, you know, it's gonna be hard. That's that's gonna be that's the most difficult thing for you to overcome. Number one. So. Yep, hundred um, percent. Yeah, it was a fun episode, dude. Uh, I want to do more with biologists. You know, so we got we got a couple in the hopper that we're trying to get lined up right now that I think people are gonna really enjoy, especially if you liked this episode. So. Um, Looking forward to it. Yep, absolutely. Appreciate everybody listening to this week's episode. I don't think we have a new review. Uh, no, I don't think we do. Got you. So, anyways, appreciate everybody listening to the podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, you enjoy this episode, please share it with some friends and family. Uh, just share it with a buddy. Share it with somebody this week. Uh, share the Southern Outdoorsman podcast. And also, if you enjoy the podcast, go over on Apple Podcasts. Again, roughly 76% of you guys are listening, guys and gals, are listening on Apple Podcasts. If you can, go leave us a five-star review and really enjoy the podcast, leave us a five-star written review. I like to read the new reviews uh, each and every week when we get new reviews coming in. And uh, just appreciate y'all's support, guys. And we'll catch you back here on next Monday's episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Y'all go ahead and write down the dates, June 28th through June the 30th. Go ahead and just mark those off your calendar so you can be at the Dalton Convention Center in Dalton, Georgia for the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard a, a ton of content from that expo last year that we posted. Uh, we talked about it a ton. Look, if you're the kind of person that listens to this podcast, this show was literally made for you. It was literally designed for you, which means you're going to love it. You know, all the best companies in mobile hunting are going to be there. A lot of the best deer killers in the Southeast are going to be there. A lot of our past podcast guests are going to be there. It's just, it's going to be an incredible event. And hey, if you've been looking to either get into a saddle or maybe a mobile lock-on setup or just a different kind of tree stand setup, I'm telling you it's worth the investment to go to this show because they're all going to be there and you, you will get to try all of them in person before you buy it. So you don't have to order something online and then wait for it and then try it when it comes in to see if you really like it. You're going to get to go put your hands on everything all in one day, test it all out and figure out exactly what works best for you and have it taken care of before deer season starts. So like I said, go ahead and put it on your calendar, guys. It's a no brainer. You got to be at the show. Again, it's Friday, June 28th through Sunday, June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. We absolutely cannot wait to meet you guys there and talk hunting. So we'll see you at the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo in Dalton, Georgia.